Open your Bibles again this morning to the seventh chapter of John's Gospel, John 7. And we're going to, with the Lord's help, finish out chapter 7 this morning. Let's begin in prayer, though. Father, help us now. We come before your word and... Regardless of our intellect, regardless of our education, regardless of anything else, unless you open our ears, unless you take the truths from your word and place it into our minds, that it might affect our hearts, we are hopeless and we are helpless. And so, Father, while we may open the book physically, my prayer is that you would open the book before us spiritually and feed your people from it. Bring about change in all of us that is glorifying to your name, consistent with who you are and what you are. And in everything that you do, cause us to hope in Christ as we see him more clearly revealed. We pray this all in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Begin reading in verse 45. You're remembering that Jesus has been teaching in the temple at the Feast of Tabernacles. It's now concluded. His enemies are sufficiently provoked. They've sent out the officers to arrest Jesus for the intended purpose of his murder. And in verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. We need to talk, brothers and sisters, this morning about a pervasive and persistent problem that every one of you, certainly myself, and really every human being ever born has. That's the problem of pride. Pride is a terrible thing. Part of what makes pride such a terrible thing is its blinding nature. Those who are plagued by it, who are living in it, can't see it. It's obvious to everyone except the one in it. That's true of individuals. It's true of groups. And here this morning we see it is a group comprised of individuals, yes, but it is an entire group, an entire system that are so blinded by their pride, their prejudice that they are blind to the power of Jesus Christ. 
It's also terrible because of what it prevents. Not only can you not see it, but what it prevents, it prevents us from seeing Christ. It keeps us from believing Christ. It keeps us from coming to Christ. It keeps us from depending upon Christ. Pride is really at the root of every other sin. And it prevents that which is necessary for life. In the case of Adam and Eve, it took them out of a state of life and into a state of death where we have remained ever since until Christ frees us from that. And so in verse 45 of John chapter 7, as these religious leaders go into their session, themselves seething with this innate pride that is natural to fallen humanity, but is stoked by the fires of false religion. It has prejudiced them from acknowledging the power of the only truly righteous man among them, even though they think they are the epitome of what it is to be righteous. They can't see and they will not believe the one who truly is righteous. And he's not just the most righteous man among them. He is the only righteous man in all of history. Including those of us here who might be tempted to think how good we are. There is no one good, only God and only the Son of God in human flesh has demonstrated that. So I want you to see with me this morning the three phases that we find played out in this text before us. And first, we see the proud rebuke. The proud rebuke of the temple garden. Now, we need to be reminded of the characters involved in this portion of the story. There are the Sadducees. They are the elite. They are the spiritual leaders of Israel, born into their positions of power. You don't go to the school of the Sadducees and simply place yourself among the number of the Sanhedrin. These people are born into this life. They have the right name, the right pedigree, the right places of birth. And then we have the Pharisees. These are the the truly religious zealots of Jesus' day. They do go to school. Anyone can become a Pharisee. And so you have the pride of station in life among the Sadducees. You have the pride of learning among the Pharisees. And then you have the temple guard, a subset of both of these. Now, we might look at the temple guard throughout the New Testament and throughout the Gospels, and we might see them as, you know, enforcers. Pious thugs who are there to just play heavy-handed with those who would dare to question the system, but they are not. The the temple guards or officers are not merely goons, they're not merely enforcers. They are primary religious men. They factor in prominently into religious life in Israel. They are studied, they are learned, they are pedigreed, They, they are from the tribe of Levi. And so these are no... Individuals who should just be dismissed out of hand as being, you know, kind of 
hayseed hicks that don't really know anything, but they've got a lot of brawn. No, they've got brain too. And so these men are capable not only of carrying out by force what may be required, but they are also able of understanding what they are doing because they have been educated in the religious system of Jesus' day. And so the Sanhedrin, the comprising of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, have issued orders to these guards, and they have told them, go apprehend Jesus and bring him here. The temple guard no doubt have heard that the purpose of which will ultimately end in his murder. Do not do it. If you want an example that comes first of their pride, it is this. That these religious leaders thought that just because they give the order, that it will be blindly followed. And now they have found themselves in an encounter with men who know the truth and know that a violation of that order is absolutely in order because the first order violates the law. These men don't go get Jesus because they can't. It becomes clear they don't go get Jesus because they won't. This is absolute defiance of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They call out their pride by their inaction to go and get Jesus. This may seem like a non-issue to us. It may not seem that important to us. We may read over this portion of the scriptures very quickly and say, oh, that's interesting and move on. But we need to park and understand what is going on. These men are bothered by the gross violation of the law that they have been ordered to carry out. And they refuse to do it. Some of you know what that's like. Some person in your life, in their arrogance and in their pride, have told you to do something that you clearly know is wrong. But they don't care. They they believe themselves to be above the laws or the ethics or whatever the situation might be. But, But imagine someone... So arrogant that they would actually rebuke you for doing what the Bible in their day had told them to do and not to do. You're probably saying I can identify with that as well. I've been rebuked by others for trying to to live my life in such a way that it honors God. That it's pleasing to God. That it is consistent with the scripture. And I have actually had people rebuke me for doing that. You don't have to raise your hand. But I'm guessing that's probably most everybody in here. We simply want to honor God. These men are simply trying to carry out what they believe to be true. Based on their own study of the law. The religious leaders are seething. Why is he not in this room? We told you. Yeah, but the law says something different. And we are not going to violate what we have seen. And what have they seen? It's very clear. 
the officer answers them. No man has ever spoken like this. We have heard things. We have seen things. And I am here to tell you, I don't care what your title is. I don't care what council you sit on. But I am not going to sit in gross violation of a man who speaks like this. Never has a man spoken like this man speaks. Jesus speaks different in what he says and in how he says it. Our Conscience is subordinate to the truth. And the truth is what this man is speaking. That's why he's not here. Because never has a man spoken like this man speaks. How did Jesus speak? How how does our Lord speak even now through his word? Why is Christ preeminent? Why is his authority so much more powerful than any man's authority. Because he is authority. Notice Mark one twenty two. If you want to jot this down. They were amazed. That Mark says at his. Meaning Jesus teaching. For he was teaching them as one. Possessing authority. One having authority. Not as the scribes. Oh what a blow. Not only does Jesus have authority, you don't have any authority. That that is an absolute taking out of their knees. This destroys their pride. Something the religious leaders did not do because they could not do it. They had no authority. Christ is authority. He in himself and his character and who he is has all authority. Not only that, but these scribes, these Pharisees, this Sanhedrin did not interpret the law correctly. Therefore, they could not speak with any secondary authority like the prophets did. Never believe a man because he is a great orator. Never follow a man because he already has a big following. Never follow a man because he claims to have credentials. Because none of us possess this kind of authority. The only authority we have is when we open this. And that is what Jesus has done. He has spoken as the source of this book. The the very one with whom authority is inherent. And, And these guards realize this. He speaks with authority. He's not like you guys whose authority is yourself. That was the problem with Judaism and Jesus' day, all, you know what their authority was? Quoting each other. Listen, I, you can go back to my office anytime you want. I love commentaries and I like books. But they're not authoritative because one has more footnotes than the other one has. They're only authoritative so long as they are consistent with what this book says. 
And these guards are holding these men accountable to that standard. This man actually has authority. He doesn't just sit around quoting you guys like you do. He has authority. But it's not just blind authority. It's not just bullish authority. He also speaks in a way that is different because he speaks with grace and with truth. John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses. That's the authority. That's the truth. But notice how Jesus applies it. Grace and truth, John says, are realized through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ could speak with authority, but he would do so in a true way that was also so gracious. This religious council obviously doesn't do that. In fact, Jesus is in the position he is in largely because he healed a man in John 5, two chapters ago, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees refused to touch. They're not going to help him. They have no compassion. They have no care. And yet when Jesus opens his mouth, imagine the paradox. Authority that causes the earth to tremble. Delivered with grace and truth. We're not touching him. Because he has authority in that way. And he wields that authority in that way. You guys don't do that. Something is starting to look really fishy with you. And really true with him. We're not bringing him. Third, he speaks with compassion. Isn't it a comfort that our Savior is not some transcendent God, although He is, who speaks with cold, clinical, sovereign truth, and that just is what it is. Just lump it, get over it, here it is. That wasn't Jesus. Jesus was a man filled with compassion. Luke seven thirteen. when the Lord saw her, He felt compassion. For her and said to her, Do not weep. When Jesus comes to Jerusalem and he looks out over a city in John chapter 11, and this city is in absolute rejection of him as he's. As he goes to his friend Lazarus, who's dead, he weeps. Why? Compassion. He weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps over the loss of his friend. He loves. No man ever did that. No man ever spoke like this. And part of the way Jesus spoke was not only with authority, not only with grace as revealing that which is undeserved from God, but he is moved by compassion. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees in Matthew 12. You remember Jesus' disciples are violating the Sabbath. And the Pharisees condemn him and they say, look, your disciples do what is not lawful on a Sabbath. Jesus answers in verse 7, but if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Hey guys, you ought to take a look. 
at how I live and how my disciples live. He's a man of compassion. And these guards understand that. They see that that Jesus is altogether different than the authorities they were used to. And fourth, Jesus speaks with finality. He's the final answer from God. We don't need anybody else to come with a greater authority. Jesus has final authority. I love Revelation 1. You know, people often look at the book of Revelation and they want the sensational. They they want the juicy stuff, right? They want to debate this and that and the other, but they forget what the entire book is about. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The unveiling of Christ. A clear vision of Christ. And here is one of the things we see about him. Jesus saying to John, who is absolutely awestruck by a vision of Jesus, says, do not be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. I am the authority by which this entire world has come into existence and I am the last. I will determine the very ends of all things and I am the living one and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Could any man say that? And so the temple guards say, Until you can, we're not bringing him. He speaks as one who has something you don't have, and you don't have it because your pride has blinded you and even provoked you to sinful envy. Were these people against a Messiah? No. They claim to be for the Messiah. But they hated the Messiah who didn't come the way they thought he should come. They were envious of Jesus. Jesus does things. Jesus said things. People believe things that Jesus says. They don't do that for us. How how dare he? They hate the truth because they want the truth to originate with them. Their pride is stoked. They believe they are the epicenter of God's dealing with man. Brothers and sisters, we ought to pray that God would never allow us to have such a mentality. That we are somehow the gift that people need. Christ is all we need. Christ speaks to our need. Christ speaks differently than anyone else would speak to us. The great concern of the leaders is that these officers now have been led to follow Jesus. Notice their mocking tone. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? Hey, you. Weak-minded little peasants, have you been led astray? Has Jesus convinced you? Notice what their question is not. It is not, you know, you may have a point. Could we talk, where did you, where in the Old Testament, where in the law have you come up with this conclusion? Tell us, maybe we missed something. They're not asking that question. 
They're just wanting to know, in, in, a, in a mocking way, are you so weak-minded you fell for it? It's a question of, have you deserted your dear leaders? Again, their arrogance is demonstrated in their perspective. Anything that isn't from us means that you've strayed from God. I've often said the difference in discernment and being judgmental is discerning says, let's both take this, let's explore this together and come to a unified conclusion. Judgmentalism says, well, here's the standard I've come up with. Live up to it. That's exactly what they're doing. Their interpretations, their standards. In this case, the temple guard have not been led astray. They're actually closer to the truth than the religious leaders are. If anybody ought to be interrogating someone, it ought to be the guards interrogating the leaders. They're closer to a right conclusion than the leaders are, but the pride and the arrogance leads to a rejection by these rulers. Notice the smug assertion in verse 48. No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him. In other words, look at us. You don't see us following Jesus. You don't see us behaving in this manner. This is the ultimate expression of a younger sibling being told, well, your older brother or sister doesn't do that. They're holding themselves up. You don't see us running after that, do you? I mean, notice the standard. Who wouldn't want this standard? We're not chasing Jesus. Why are you? Making themselves the objective arbiters of truth, not the word of God. That these temple guard clearly know something about. You don't see us groveling at this peasant's feet. Or do you know of somebody who has? Intimidation, threatening. Okay, go ahead, produce it, produce it. Who has? Who has? Their antipathy extends beyond those who like them. Anyone not them dares to question them and follow Jesus. It's not just Jesus. It's anyone who will follow Jesus. They don't want you. They don't like you. The world doesn't like him and it's not going to like us. That's their pride speaking. And now we begin to see their prejudice. Look what they say in verse 49. But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. Anathema. As is so often the case with the achievement or position in life. 
things that come to us in life by God's sheer grace. And that's all anything that we are or have is. It is God's grace to us. We deserve nothing. But so often when people are attain a certain position or uh, certain uh, acquisitions in life and they've, they've been given some station or thing or whatever it is in life, it, it almost comes with an intoxicating sense of amnesia. They forget who they really are. Have you known anybody like that? They came from humble means by God's providence in their life. They've been prospered in some way and they start to act like they're really something. That's hard to stomach, isn't it? It's like those who say they start to believe their own press, their own news headlines. They fancy themselves to really be something. That's what pride does. And then it begins to prejudice you against all those other people. Brothers and sisters, there but for the grace of God, we all perish. All of us. No exceptions. You want to talk about who we are. That's who we are. As Luther says, we are brands plucked out of the fire. We are sinners saved by grace. We are the wretch that John Newton wrote about in Amazing Grace. That is all of us. But the moment we begin to let pride blind us, we begin to be prejudiced and forget everything that has shaped us, and we begin to develop an us-versus-them mentality. And that's what's happening here. Verse 49, this, this crowd, very condescending, this crowd. Kind of like in previous verses, that man. This crowd is ignorant. Edward Klink says that the guards are rebuked for their incompetency as guards. The crowd is being rebuked for their incompetency as Jews. They're not even worthy to be called our people. They are worthless. They are accursed. Please note the irony that the one missing the point of the law are the interpreters of the law. The leaders. Some in the crowd were beginning to actually get very close to the truth. Remember what we saw last week in verse 41? This is the Christ. God was awakening the hearts and the minds of some in the crowd and they're starting to yell out, This is Him! This is Him! And the Pharisees say, Accursed incompetent Jews. We don't know you. You're not one of us. You're not exclusively listening to us. This is a a spirit in a mindset that is not unique to the religious leaders of Jesus' day. It actually existed long before Jesus, especially in those 400 years between the Old and New Testaments. In what is known as the intertestamental period, there there was a pejorative way that the rabbis would speak of Jews like that. 
They would refer to them as people of the land. We would say it in our day as country bumpkins. They're just hayseeds. They're uneducated, ignorant, unclassed, unrefined. Listen to the words of one of the rabbis who wrote shortly before Jesus comes on the scene. He says this, If anyone has learned the scripture and the Mishnah, but is not served as a student of the learned. Oh boy, you've learned the scripture and you've learned the the oral traditions, but you haven't studied the leaders, us. You are one of the people of the land, he says. We are the gateway to all that is true. Another rabbi says, a brutish man does not fear sin and no people of the land is pious. God is not happy with people of the land. And here they are very much accusing them of being people of the land. Hey, temple guard, you're just people of the land. I don't care care that you're a Levite. I don't care that you went to the same school as me. In fact, you may have graduated in front of me. I don't care. You are people of the land. Why? Because you are listening to this man and you are being swayed by this man. When pride and prejudice encounters the truth, they can only... Resort, resort to insult and slander. A belittling attitude. A condescending mindset. Because they have no answer for the truth. And lies are too easily revealed in the face of truth, so we just resort to slander. These people are cursed. They're people of the land. You don't see us doing that. We're the refined, educated, knowledgeable, authoritative people. But in the midst of such irrational and childish behavior stands one man that has a voice of reason. And his name is Nicodemus. And he stands and he gives the power of true revelation. Look at verse 50. Nicodemus, he who came to him before. Now that's key. This is not Nicodemus' first rodeo with Jesus. He has been to Jesus before and he has been to Jesus in a way that these religious leaders never have. Nicodemus comes with a humbled heart. He comes to learn. He comes to actually be taught, and he will actually become a follower of Jesus, who I am absolutely convinced we will spend eternity with in heaven. No, there's a man you should interview. We all talk about Paul and Peter and Moses and so on, and that's great. Let's talk to Nicodemus, too. Nicodemus, what was it like to talk to Jesus that night? Oh, I can't even begin to tell you. Grace and truth, grace and truth. 
So here, this man who appears to have some sense of reason of whether or not he is converted at this point, I couldn't say. But he's with Jesus in the end. But here he stands up and he confronts the religious leaders. He who came to him by night in the past, who, who knows who knows what Jesus teaches, he, he has heard and he has seen. And he says to them, our law, it was very wise. He's not accusing. He's not slandering. He's not playing their dirty games. He, he asks an honest question. Now, our law does not judge a man unless it, first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? I mean, Proverbs says that you're a fool if you don't hear both sides of the story before you render judgment. Proverbs says it's folly, it's foolishness to just listen to one man's side. Shouldn't we at least hear Jesus out? Or are you afraid of the truth? We should never be afraid of the truth. Why? Because the truth always sets you free. It may not always be a pleasant road, but it will set you free. Because it's right. And it honors God. And so Nicodemus stands really with great courage among his peers. And he he says, listen, would we be right... To judge this man without hearing him first? The answer to that question is rhetorical. No, we would not be. They know that, so notice what they do. They begin by slandering again. Oh, are you from Galilee? Are you from Galilee too? Were you and Jesus' buddies when you were younger? The sarcasm just drips from their proud, prejudiced lips. Yet Nicodemus is the only one who is speaking truth and sense to them outside of the temple guards. Nicodemus has them pinned to a corner and they know it. So what do they do? They misdirect. Don't you hate that when you... With kind and sweet attention, uh, intentions, go to someone and you try to help them and they turn it on you? Hey, listen. Yeah, but you do this. We're not talking about that. We're talking about this. Nicodemus says, let's talk about this. And they're saying, no, let's talk about that. Are you from Galilee? This isn't about me. And why are you all of a sudden so interested where I'm from? You know where I'm from. It's a, where insults and where all of those things don't work. Misdirection might. They are, they are trying everything. We're just trying to muddy the water as much as we can. You hear it every day in the news, don't you? Doesn't it drive you crazy? You know what press conferences are good for? Nothing. Because they're never going to answer a question they don't want to answer. 
they will misdirect and muddy. They're pros. It's human nature. The point is made. The point is made. A confession is given. They know. Therefore, they react. They are just not at a point where they can't discern the truth. They know the truth, and they are reacting now against the truth. And that's what so often happens. It isn't that they don't know. It's that they do know, and they don't like it. A lost world will often respond that way to the Savior, whether it is to his face, as in John 7, or to him through us and our words and our witness for him. They will respond. So, brothers and sisters, don't be discouraged when the world treats you this way. Blinded by pride, mired in prejudice, refusing to see what is clearly the truth. Nicodemus just says, we need to hear him. We need to hear him. Our own law mandates that we hear him. Well, you're not from Galilee, are you? You search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Again, their prejudice begins to bleed through. Apparently, Nicodemus is just one of those persons of the land again. He's just one of them. Because after all, You should know, Nicodemus, you're one of us, that the Messiah is going to come out of Judah and out of Bethlehem, out of David's seed. That's who we are. This man came out of Galilee. (laughs) You almost feel sorry for him at this point. You know, they they tell people that enter things like espionage and the CIA, they they, they tell them one thing, one lesson you have to learn early. Only lie about things you know they can't prove. Only make strong assertions about things you know nobody can come back and prove you wrong about. No prophet arises out of Galilee. Mm. We learn from the prophets that there would be a, a prophet who would be a Nazarene. One from Nazareth. Where is Nazareth? Oh, that's right. It's in Galilee. He is both. He is born of the seed of David from the city of Bethlehem. But he grew up in Nazareth in his mother's home and in his earthly father's workshop. And he shall be called, Matthew 2.23, a Nazarene. Quoting And so there's a humiliation that occurs. These religious leaders demonstrate they don't even really know their own law that well. It's going from bad to worse for them. Why? Pride. Pride that can't stand the truth of the Savior. They dare Nicodemus to discover what is obviously true. Well, guys, that's easy. You're the ones who look foolish. But there's a greater point that they are missing here. And this is the point that we need to close with this morning. 
And that is this. We don't need to. The word of God is true. From beginning to end, it is consistent from beginning to end. We don't need to doubt and get down in the mud and sling mud over what is patently, provably true. What we must do and what they must do is through hearts of faith, bow to the truth. This isn't really about Jesus being from Bethlehem or Jesus from being from Nazareth. Let me tell you what it is about. Jesus is from the Father. That's what this is all about. Let's, let's talk turkey. Let's cut the fat. Let's get to the point and, and cut to the quick here. Jesus is from the Father. That's your real problem. Not about what city he lived in here on earth. And that's what you're rejecting. That's what you're pushing back against. Jesus is from the Father. Why do men and women today still reject Jesus? Their pride. Their prejudices. Their refusal to see what is true. Jesus is not from this world. He's from the Father. He came into this world, but He is not from this world. And because He is not from this world, He can take us to the world where He is from. And by faith, He will. What a sad, earthly, worldly mindset these people are in. They're rebuked by the guard. They're rebuked by Nicodemus. And still they refuse to see it. How do we know? It doesn't say here that they refuse. Well, they eventually crucify him. That's how we know. I think some of them repent of that in Acts 2. Peter says, you crucified him. Oh, what must we do now? What a... What a missed opportunity while he was here. We could have learned from him. But our pride blinded us. Our prejudice took us away from him. It doesn't end well for them here. And it won't in the future either. Unless they came to faith. And we're not told. It's not good for you now. And it will not be good for you in the future either. If you do not bow your knee in humility to the person of Christ. You must believe. You must believe. Only faith is the right response to Jesus. It is the only appropriate, correct, life-giving response. So let me just ask you in closing, are there any prejudices that are keeping you this morning from believing Jesus to be who he said he is? Is there any pride in your heart that is causing you to hold on to sin that you refuse to confess because you are afraid that if the truth comes out, that, that there will be all kinds of prices to pay? Let me tell you something. Jesus forgives. And Jesus can restore. But we must confess Not only him before men, but our sins to him. So that we might be freed from them. It's our pride in the way of accepting him. Fear of our reputation. If we bow the knee to him and confess to him what he already knows to be true. May God open all of our eyes and keep them open. 
to who his son really is, to where his son is really from, that we might believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this testimony that has been recorded for us. Thank you that we can know who Christ is. May we, Father, experience your grace of destroying our pride, of convicting us of the prejudices that follow, and may we believe every single one of us here this morning or watching, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know, Father, that only you can grant faith to believe. And so we ask that you would create in us hearts of belief that would believe both now and forever. Keep us, Father, preserve us from falling away ever from that bedrock conviction that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who lived and died and was raised again for us. We thank you for your ministry among those of us who do believe. We pray that it would continue in those who have yet to believe. And we ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.